This is the MFG Cast. Hey guys, Kurt here. I'm rolling solo Mio on the MFG cast side of things today, but I'm not alone. Boy, I feel like I've said this many times, but that's good though, because we have another great guest. We have, oh, you know what? I haven't even, I didn't even ask you. Is it Primo? Oh, Primo. Primo. There we go. There we go. We have, <laughs> we have Mike Primo from Path of Play Day. See, I, I admire you because you didn't stop and say, okay, take two. You're just rolling. Yep. Very yep. impressed, what, Kurt. Very impressed. That's what editing is for, people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he is one of the co-founders of Path of Play Day. The Path of Play Day is an annual event that supports children with special needs and promotes play as a strategy for inclusion, empathy, and acceptance. And does this sound like I'm reading it off a prompter? Yes, I am, because it sounds way better than I would imagine it. So, Mike, thanks for coming on and talking to us today. Thank you, Kurt. It's great to be here. No problem. So before we get into Path of Play, uh, let's just get into a couple of questions I had about autism, because I feel like, you know, people kind of know somewhat what autism is, but I don't know they know the true meaning of it. So, you know, I feel like autism affects people differently. Explain what that is and your experience with it. You know, I'll tell you, I I sometimes wonder if I even understand what autism is. We, mm-hmm. I think we all have our own description of it. And I think it becomes a little bit more clear to us as we engage with this realm, especially if you're living with it. Uh, Very recently, I've started to look at autism as something very non-medical, I guess is the way that I can describe it. And I'm going to go with that and hopefully your audience will be able to correlate my vision. But I recently I heard someone describe autism this way and I really liked it. And as, as a matter of fact, the person describing it is autistic. And I think that was really important because we're not at a point yet where I think we have enough people on the spectrum speaking about autism. And I think we're getting to that point. So here's what they had to say. Autism to them was they saw themselves in a bubble. And they can see us and they know we can see them. But making that connection both emotionally and physically, and seeing those two worlds come together is where the challenge lies because of the internal challenges and emotional challenges that autism can, the way autism impacts a person. And the objective is trying to figure out how to remove that bubble so that we can be a part of each other's world. From a medical perspective, I would say that autism is a, is a condition, for lack of a better term, that creates sensory issues for individuals and it changes the way they have to adapt to an environment. And in some ways, they are prohibited from doing so. 
And it's a situation that we don't fully understand because we're not feeling it. We know they're going to be okay, but they don't know they're going to be okay. Maybe that's the best way that I can... It's, it's almost like anxiety in a way, you know, as kind of what I just said there, is that you can, you can look at a person and know that they're safe, but they have no idea that, that they are safe. Personally, an example of that would be uh, when, when we were bringing our son to a... It was an indoor fa- uh, fairground. It had like an indoor roller coaster and some dinosaurs and various rides. And all of those sounds that those activities and attractions were making became like this supersonic overload for my son. You know, we can walk into a place like that and we can in the distance hear, you know, the rush of the roller coaster or the roar of the dinosaur and we can process those things in a way that doesn't cause a trigger for us or a sensory issue. And in the case of my son, it just became audio overload. Another example could be something as simple as a tag on the back of a shirt. The way that it feels to an autistic person is it's almost um, piercingly penetrating to them to have to deal with that sensation. And so these sensory elements are heightened for them and it becomes unmanageable and can cause responses that we're not used to. But we can help them by accommodating them, for one thing. And when they have their, their coping behavioral traits, we can mimic those things with them. For example, my son likes to walk on his tippy toes when he's excited or if he's overwhelmed. And there are times where I will just do that with him so that he sees me validating his behaviors. And that is the beginning of how that bubble between the two worlds starts to get removed. They see someone else accommodating them, and somehow, which I cannot explain, they start to find their own way to reciprocate with our world. And that's what we've begun to see in our experience with our son. Pairing that with early intervention has put us in a place where he now wants to embrace his social environments. And he's still learning. Like we just played a little bit of Nintendo last night and we were playing the game Overcooked and the music was getting too fast for him and it became a sensory issue for him. So we just stopped at the game. We did some yoga breaths, gave him a hug and he was fine. But he told me today that he wanted to try again, and I never asked him. I never placed him back in the chair and and made him figure out how to deal with it. He said it all on his own, and that's how I know the early intervention has been effective, and it's been exercised in a way that doesn't, you know, we're not giving him Skittles if he does this or that. We are trying to present the benefit of the benefit itself so that he can learn how to embrace those things. And we've been very lucky in the journey so far. I love that you just, you talked about Overcooked. I will have to, <laughs> I'll have to play this for my son and my wife because that is our, one of our favorite games right now. So I love that game. That. Yeah, it's it's fun. <laughs> and you know what? It's even engaging my wife. Like My wife is typically not a video gamer, but I got to really hand it to Nintendo for building the system the way that they have where 
in the case of Mario Odyssey, I can actually share the controls of Mario with Luke or Mario Kart has this self-driving or self-acceleration feature and you can you can take those things away as they become better uh, at the game. I actually have started to wonder if companies like Nintendo should have even easier levels for kids who are art- autistic and really begin the process of playing video games at the most rudimentary level possible because because I have seen my son go from not being able to manage a menu system to winning races on Mario Kart constantly and now when he's playing Overcooked uh, his habit is he walks a little bit stops walks a little bit stops but he knows how to like wash the dishes and stuff and I love like talking with him he's like daddy what should I do I said go grab a dish oh okay and he'll go grab it and wash the dish and I'll just say like when the diagnosis came these were the kinds of things I was thinking about constantly was he going what was going to become of this what would he be capable of would he be able to say I love you would he be able to smile for a picture would he be able to play a video game with daddy This is the lifelong journey that all families are taking, and it's one of the greatest challenges is trying to figure out how a child who is autistic is going to fit into society because you still want that for your child. And all of a sudden, all of those things that should seem automatic, all of a sudden becomes this checklist, and when you check it off, it becomes the most profound experience of your life. Yeah, it it sounds to me like... When it, when it comes to that, it seems like children that have autism or adults that have autism, it seems like they're the word that comes to me most is feeling. And it, it feels like feeling is if we're at a 10, I'm just picking a number, mm-hmm. they're at 100 because it's just it's it's so heightened because it's it, you know, it may be something for us where, you know, we walk to the store and we think, well, we're just going to grab a couple of groceries. Everything will be fine. You don't realize that. You know, there's a lot of sounds, there's a lot of smells, there's a lot of interaction that may be triggers that will affect them, where for us, we're just so used to just, oh, we're just going to go to the store now. And this is why, yeah, and this is why having those voices come from people who are actually autistic is so important, because there's no way for us to truly understand it. This analogy of, of two people, you know, one person being in a bubble, or maybe we're in the bubble, who knows? You know, that's the best way I could probably ever describe it. But there is a a great documentary, uh, and I know we're going to talk about pinball later, but um, there's a great documentary called Wizard Mode. And it's all about the life of one Robert Gagno, who's in his late 20s now. And what that family went through, uh, his mom and dad, Kathy and Maurizio, they live in British Columbia. And they had to deal with autism at a time where these support services, even though they, I still look at some of these and, and think they need, you know, more work done on them to, to be more effective for families, they almost had nothing. Like they had to drive province wide to see a, special, a doctor who specializes in autism. It was during a time where, you know, the autism realm was an incredibly unknown thing. And the only thing we associated autism to was Rain Man. He became the world pinball champion in 2016. And it's a wonderful documentary because although pinball is the stage for the story, the real story is about him wanting independence. 
and him learning how to drive a car and him being in a uh, social group to play board games and all of this, you know, trying to get his first job. He has become an incredible young man and they they were at my house last summer and I think that if people want to uh, have a, an introductory window into the world of autism and, and trying, trying to understand it on another level, Wizard Mode would be the, one of the first things that I would watch. In fact, I think you can see it for free on YouTube now. So people should check that out. I already wrote it down. I'm already going to check it out. <laughs> <laughs> Just another thing you need to do, right? That's right. I know. Oh, so many things in the day. Oh, it's a really interesting life journey, though, and, it, uh, and you learn a little bit. So Yep, yep. And that's, that's what we're here for. That's what we like to do. You talked about the spectrum of autism. That's something that personally I don't really know anything about. Can you can you just explain this a, li- a little boy? Can you explain this in a little more detail, just so the people out there that may not know what it means uh, has mm-hmm. a you know this kind of opens up you know what exactly the spectrum is. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people look at the spectrum as sort of like this straight line. Like if you're looking at a page, there's one end and then there's another end, almost like the the pH thing. What is that? Acidity versus I can't remember now. I I haven't taken biology in a yeah, long time. Yeah, I was gonna say that's science. I that's would, science. I did horrible at science. So yeah, but I, you won't get it out of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a lot of people look at the spectrum in the same way, and I tend to look at it as more of a circle. So if anybody's familiar with programs like Photoshop or Adobe After Effects or something, and you go to choose a color for a solid like a like you draw you draw a shape and you want to make it a color when you get one way to pick your color is with a, a, a circle a sphere and that to me the the spectrum is more relevant to that kind of idea where you look at this circle and as you as you move around the circle the colors change in the color spectrum and the reason why i like to look at it that way is because Behavioral traits are a big part of autism, you know, um, being nonverbal, being able to look at people, um, how you cope with your behavioral traits. Um, there's, there's all sorts of, of these traits and why one person has certain ones and why uh, another person has different, you know, a different set. It, it's almost like you know, is if someone asked you to fly up in a helicopter and throw a yoga ball onto a target on the ground and and the wind carries the ball where it's going to carry it, wherever it lands, that's that's about <laughs> the best explanation you can get as to why certain people get these behavioral traits and why another person might might get another. You know, Luke has a couple of friends in his class that are also on the spectrum and they're completely different from from Luke. But that's why I like to sort of look at that spectrum as like a, a color a color sphere because um, those colors can represent some of those different traits. And wherever those points land, the further out they are from the center, the more severe those traits can be. So now you're not just saying, well, you're this far on the left side or you're that far on the right side. You actually have these traits that are are within this sphere and the the extremities of them uh, can be measured by how close to the outer edge of that circle you are. And if you looked at, you know, if, if every autistic person had one of these uh, to represent those behavioral traits, 
it would be a lot easier to identify those traits and and understand them and um, learning how to help them manage those traits I think would be would be a lot easier as well but again you look at something like a picture and again that's just so mechanical the best really the best way to deal with those traits is just spending time with people who are on the spectrum and you know that's a daily thing with with families that are living with autism it's autism is is not something that you ever get to put down it is a lifelong journey i often say it's not typically life threatening but it is absolutely life changing and I think that even 20 years from now, you know, even though I could put some of my son's behavioral traits on on that sphere that I talk about, that's going to change over time. And so the best way that I can serve him is just sort of being inside the realm is just put that aside and and let my direct association with him tell me what he needs. He he's actually really good at communicating those needs now and um and uh, listening, listening to him has, has been a big part of us being able to move forward with him. Dealing with your son as a child with autism and coming up to now where he can kind of tell you some of the things that he needs and stuff like that, what are some of the challenges in between and how have you kind of adapted to that? And, you know, because I, I don't want to put, I don't want to put my son on the same, like, I just want to try to correlate what's going on because my kid has ADHD. Okay. And uh, when we first, when he was a baby, it was very hard for us to understand what he wanted because, again, he's a baby. He can't tell you anything. Mm-hmm. He can kind of express what he wants. And, you know, we had a lot of trouble with him, like, physically. Like, he would, when he was younger growing up until when he f- could start expressing his feelings he would lash out by hitting or kicking or yelling unintelligibly and stuff like that and right. there were certain challenges that we had to do to kind of you know mold him into this person that he is today you know what are some of the challenges that you had that first I'm sure when you first when he was first diagnosed you were like okay we have so many questions you know we have to oh kind it of... was confusion beyond belief yeah. 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 And then, you know, and then, you know, and still, I'm sh- I, like you've been saying, you're still learning today what exactly you need to do to, you know, have your son have this great life that you want for him. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the things that you've that you've done that have that have helped not only him, yeah. but you and your wife? Yeah. How old is your well? son, by the way? I just want to. Uh, he is uh, almost eight. OK, well, I'm glad he, he's doing well. That's great. That I always makes it. me happy when when parents <laughs> talk about you know having positive outcomes. Listen, there's no there's no greater substitute. Uh, let me let me start that answer. Cut. Make sure you cut that out. I don't mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything more important in anything you do for your child than make sure that they are given an abundance of love. I think it starts there. When you have love for your child as a foundation, then you can do anything that you need for that you need to do for them. And when you have that, you become a lot less rigid. And I think that one of the things that, at least when it comes to kids on the spectrum, you have to be prepared to sort of let the rules go out the window to a point. You know, you still have to be a parent. And I would say that probably the greatest challenge is Knowing when it's the autism and knowing when it's just him being a toddler, 
<laughs> because he's he's still capable of of doing that. He's a very very uh I think he's a smart kid. He he has this way to negotiate, you know, like if he wants a candy, he uh he started referring to his treats after supper as special power treats. You know, he came up with that term all on his own. And it was, and I know what he's doing. He's trying to tell me like, these are really important things because it makes me healthier dad. Right. So, you know, we, we started there and then, you know, on the odd night where I say, you know, Luke, you've had a little too much, you know, junk food today, no special power treat tonight. Well then he'll, he'll say, daddy, would you like a special power treat? And then you know where it's going, right? (laughs) If you can have so, one, then I can have yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and sometimes I just gotta tip my hat to the kid. Like he you know, and then you give in and you know, you move on. But I think when it comes to, you know, these sensory issues and these things that they have to deal with, you sort of have to and it mimics our model for path of play. When these kids come over, we don't tell them what to do or when to do it. They embrace the the environment and they manipulate it the way that they want to. And by letting someone who's autistic just sort of, it's almost like a cat. You ever notice how cats, you try to go and pet them, they're just not going to let you. But if you sit there in the room long enough, they're going to come to you. And that's kind of what you have to do uh, when you're trying to help a child manage their sensory issues is keep, keep the place quiet and introduce options, but let them choose. And when they get that sense of ownership, then you start to minimize those challenges. I really feel like the more that they feel like they're managing their own world, the less scared they are of the things that could make them afraid a lot less frequent. So I I would say that that would be a great starting point. And then from there, I mean, we haven't had to do, we haven't had to do too much outside of that to tell you the truth, Kurt, because we don't, we don't get worked up if he doesn't you know, that whole A plus B equals C thing, we, we just kind of threw that out the window a long time ago. And, you know, if he if he decides one night he really wants to watch a movie we and stay up a little later, we kind of just go with it. We don't make eating a, a fight. Like, we just, we, we choose our battles. And uh, it I think for us it's been the best way to minimize some of those challenges and fears and starting to feel a little bit more quote-unquote normal these days. But... Again, every situation's different, and that's why I said, like, you know, making sure there's enough that the, what's the what's the best way to describe it? Just just that kind of love that is like non-negotiable. It's just there, right? It just comes in abundance, and when you have that as your base, parents will will figure out what to do because they realize over time, like, those support systems are there, and they do have people to talk to, and. Having having said that, though, I, I belong to a uh, autism group in Ontario, and some of the stories I see are are really frightening, and I see them every day. Like, I see situations like people will post that their family still doesn't believe that their child's autistic, or they're blaming them as a parent for the way that they bring up their child, and that really makes me sad. That you know when you have that resistance. In fact, you know, that resistance is kind of natural. Like when we first started telling our families, they didn't really want to believe it either. And it's not that they're bad people, but a lot of people tend to go to that. Oh, well, he's a boy. He develops late. Don't worry. He'll come around. There's, there's that kind of thing. Right. And especially if your child is, is not, uh, if they're high functioning is a common term, 
which Luke is, then there's a lot of comparison. Like, oh, I have a cousin and their child's way more autistic than this child. Like, you hear things like that. And it kind of dismisses, you know, you as a parent living with autism in a way. So that that's why I said like that, that unconditional love, that was the term I was trying to think of. And, and having it come from everybody that's in your, in your life, if you have that, you will find a way to get through it. Because I, I have some friends that live on stateside, and they're very, I, I've known this guy since we were four years old. Like, we played our street hockey together in the small town we grew up in. And his daughter is six or seven now. She's nonverbal. A, a number of challenges. But you know what? I see them having some really happy times with, with their daughter because there's a lot of love around them, and... They have an unbelievable amount of con- unconditional love for, for their little girl, and she's just wonderful. Like, when we visit, she'll come up and hug and cuddle, and that's all she needs. Or she'll grab your hand and take you where she wants to go. And it's a really, really interesting kind of communication that you have with autistic kids that are nonverbal, is that they find their way to tell you how they're feeling, what they want. And it's a, it's a really, it's a very different kind of connection, but a very special one. I like your advice of the unconditional love as far as even like opening up because I think as parents, I think that we're so conditioned to be, our kid needs to be like this, our kid needs to do this, this is how the way it should work. You don't realize that they have all the feelings in the world that they need to express and you need to let them express them. But also at the same time, you could in a loving way, express how you're feeling too, where I think a lot of parents don't do that. I think a lot of parents kind of hide that or like, I'm the, I'm the adult. This is how it works. They don't realize that you have to explain to your child, regardless of where, you know, what your situation is, you know, like, this is why we're doing this. I'm not, we're not doing this to punish you. We're not doing this because this is the certain way things are. It's just, this is where I'm coming from, and this is why I love you, and this is why we're doing this the way it is. And, you know, if it's something we need to change, let's talk about it. Yeah, it's uh, it's not to say that we we don't lay down the hammer. Like, there have been times where, you know, his behavior has gotten out of hand, and I didn't feel that it was the autism. And so it starts by taking a toy away. And if he screams more, then I take another toy, and I just look at him and say, you want to do it again? And I'll tell him the next toy that's going to go if he does it. And then he stops and then he asks for a hug and we're good. And then I tell him that if he can, you know, get back to the way we know him, uh, you know, maybe tomorrow I'll give those toys back. And if we get, you know, it doesn't happen often, actually. His, we are very lucky. His daycare teachers and his, now he's in JK, he's going to a regular school and, and, all of his teachers tell us like he is one of the best behaved boys they've ever had. We're we're just really 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 lucky, and uh, we're we're all you know what when you're dealing with autism, you're those are nice little feathers in the cap to have. That's awesome. Yeah. So let so let's talk a little bit more about Path of Play Day. So you know you're raising money and awareness for autism but what are what are some of the perks what are some of the things that we're doing that you know what are some of the looks what you it looks like you guys are streaming on April 28th what 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 can people expect when uh, path of play day comes to fruition well path of play day is a celebration of our efforts uh in what we're trying to do um 
you know, as far as what we do with Path of Play, it's the center point of it to me is our monthly family game days where families who live with autism come to the house and play pinball and board games and play with toys. And we have therapists on site to spend time with the kids. And it, it actually becomes therapeutic for the parents. And we also have families who are not living with special needs and they come and join us. And it, it just becomes the ultimate awareness tool. We also have the subsidy programs uh, where we offer families uh, support for therapy costs. We buy, uh, we're getting into a program stateside now where we're going to be purchasing uh, communication apps for families who can't afford them. They're like 400 bucks. They're really quite pricey. Um, so all of this work has culminated into us celebrating together. Uh, people have made teams. You've made a team. People are um, contributing to the efforts uh, financially that we're, that we're trying to achieve. And so on that day, we're going to be live streaming from my basement, have a whole bunch of friends. They're coming from Pittsburgh, from Maine. We've got some family coming. We've got uh, some of the girls from Luke's first daycare are coming to play pinball. We've got the seventh ranked world. I got to check the rankings, but I think he's the seventh ranked pinball player in the world. His name's Steve Bowden. He's coming from New York. We've got a big announcement coming about a, a, a relationship that we're building with Steve. We're going to be making that on our stream. And mo most importantly to me, well, there's two things. We're exemplifying a, a moment of unity by having people play games with us at the same time. Now, this isn't like Tabletop Day, even though it happens to be the same day. And it's not even really like Extra Life, because what makes this different is that we are the stream. And a lot of times with Extra Life, you have, you know, people, they're, they're sort of doing their own stream and then they set up a camera and they play for 24 hours. This is an effort of trying, you know, trying to take what I do in my regular life through broadcasting and bringing, hooking up a whole bunch of gear. I think we're going to have about eight cameras set up in the basement. And we're going to be delivering some, what I think is going to be some pretty entertaining content. So one of the things we're doing is uh, a segment called Gamer Olympics. And something that's become very popular on Twitch are these speed runs. Do you ever watch these things like Zelda? And I don't think I have actually. No, it, they're a really popular thing. Is how fast can you get through a video game? And, and <laughs> that's that's pretty much my life as a video gamer. Just get me to the end. I want to know how it ends. Well, I get through it really fast because I keep dying. But that I don't think that's the kind of speed run that people want to see. And so we, you know. When we finished the basement down here, and this was long before Luke was born, we had this idea. We were like, you know, people tend to sort of, you know, they put their next their their bathroom and their shower and their extra bedroom and another kitchen for resale value. And I said to my wife, like, let's let's make this our home. What is it that we love? And we love playing. So we call this our entertainment sanctuary. It's not I have a man cave sign because people keep giving them to me. But it's not a man cave. It is, to me, a place where anybody can come down and find something to do. They can watch a movie. We have an arcade machine uh, on there. We've got, like, you know, all the MAME set up and the Atari 2600. Like, it's, I think there's something like 50,000 games on this thing. And now that we started this Path of Play project, with the support, I have to mention Nitro Pinball, Tommy Floyd out in British Columbia, uh, supported us by lending us an attack from Mars. And Jersey Jack Pinball, when we told them about the idea, they sent us a Wizard of Oz and a Dialed In. And as an organization, as we grow, we have the option to invest in those machines um, later on. But uh, we're realizing that, you know, we really have to take our time with this. And so 
we have a budget and we have strict rules on how we, you know, spend our money in various programs and, and that kind of thing. And pinball machines are very expensive. So I think we're very soon we're going to be looking at alternatives to um, extend our loan system, like build relationships with other entities so that loaned pinball machines can become more prevalent. And then we don't have to make those investments. We can save that money to actually uh, feed the charity, I think, in more effective ways. So we're hoping to make a couple of big announcements about that shortly. But we're putting all of these things together and creating this segment called Gamer Olympics. And so what it will become is the people who are here are going to be competing. And our first obstacle is people have to put two frogs in the top screen on the game Frogger. So you have to do that as fast as possible, and then they're going to be timed. And when they complete that objective, it takes usually less than a minute, they'll run to the pinball machine and they're going to have a specific objective there that they have to complete. And then they have to finish on the third obstacle by trying to throw a bullseye on the dartboard. So it's not just video games. It's a video game and a pinball machine and something physical. And then in obstacle two, or sorry, course number two, we'll replace those things. So like the dartboard is going to be replaced by this game called Shut the Box. Have you ever heard of this? Yes. So, I, yeah. For some reason, do we have that? I think we have you that. You probably <laughs> have it. Yeah. It, it's probably, it, it is the thing, it's the board game element, shall we say. And so people got to roll their dice and you, 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 you use combinations, right? You got to flip the numbers one to nine down. And based on what you roll are the numbers you can choose. So if you roll a four and a five, you can either put the nine down or you can put down the five and the four. And That's so right. the way we're going to do it is we're going to, you know, however far that you get, uh, whatever's left over is a 10-second penalty. So if you have a 1 and a 2 left, you get 30 seconds of penalty time. But if you have like the 9 and the 8 up, you're going to get like a whole mess of time added to you. <laughs> so actually, now that I think about it, it may need to be 5 seconds per number. But but basically, you got to get those higher numbers shut down so that you don't get penalty time. And, and we're going to come out with a winner. So that's going to be one thing we're going to be doing. And then we're going to be playing a pile of Jackbox games. So Quiplash and Fibbage. And because of the software that we have, we can do it in a way that there's not going to be any delay. Um, the vMix software that we use can bring someone in like a Skype call, except their camera and their audio actually becomes an input like a camera that we set up here and therefore there's no delay because they're within our software system before it goes out onto the internet. So when we play Quiplash, for example, these people can be brought up on screen if it's, um, you know, if it's, uh, if they're coming on the show as a guest. So, you know, these games often accommodate eight players at a time. We'd probably bring in four special guests that we know and then People on the internet can use the room code to, to log in if they're familiar with Jackbox Party. It's a, it's, those are really, really fun games, very interactive. And then uh, beyond the eight players, you can anybody who's watching and not playing can actually vote on the answers and, and award points to the players who are. So, so we're going to be doing those things and hopefully um, raising a little bit more money uh, during that time. And then we'll announce our final total. We're, our fundraising goal is $5,000. We're 65% of the way there. And I see no reason why, why we can't hit um, that objective. And it'll be on twitch.tv backslash path of play at 7 o'clock on Saturday, April 28th, 7 o'clock in the evening. And it's probably just going to be like, you know, 
four to six hours. Like we're not doing like this 24 hour thing to kill ourselves. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be a reasonable amount of time that people will want to, you know, have a few drinks, play some games. And the best part is that while we're doing this stream, anybody who's been a part of this or anybody who knows about this can get their own gaming group. They can play games with us. And if they use the hashtag playing for autism or play for autism, we can search for those hashtag posts within the vMix software and we can bring their social media posts within the stream. So they're going to get to see their own posts if we select it. You take a good picture with a path of play shirt, you're almost certain to get in. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a neat part of the software. And it's something that uh, if people are familiar with streaming. If they're using XSplit or OBS, you can't do that kind of stuff. That's why I like the vMix stuff so much, because I think those social media posts is a great way to engage with the audience and for them to uh, feel like they're involved in the broadcast, too. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. I love it. Cool. So, so you know, th it sounds like a great cause. I mean, it seems like you guys are really hitting a lot of aspects when it comes to, you know, raising awareness and inclusion, which, you know, is on, <laughs> was what I just read from the face when you're from your Facebook group. So, yep. um, so say April 28th comes and it goes, uh, where, where do we go from here? How do we, how do we keep, how do we keep this thing rolling? How do we keep the awareness yeah. uh, going? Well, I think there are some things that have to change, not because the things that we're doing are bad things, but it's just, um, you know, I, my full-time job is CBC and this has become a, literally a second full-time job. I, I get up at two in the morning, my shift at CBC starts at three 30. And when I come home, I work on path of play until my son comes home. And that's certainly not something that I can keep up for the rest of my life. Um, we have a strategy in place where hopefully as we grow that this the cultivating path of play can be something that starts to work into a at least a part-time role for me. And hopefully one day it can be a, uh, a full-time role. In the immediate future, what we really need to do is move ourselves from a non-for-profit status to a charity uh, registered status because uh it just so happens that we have a consultant, a consulting firm in Toronto that is interested in possibly helping us through a, a, po, a pro bono arrangement that they like to, um, they like to uh, implement with non-for-profits that they think have a real purpose to serve. And they look at us as possibly being one of those kinds of organizations. And so by being registered as a charity and ha and to accomplish our initial objectives, we can go to them and they can help us brand ourselves in a way that as being a charity, we can get the corporate sponsorship that we really need. Because ultimately what would make me uh, happy is to see these pinball machines that are in my house right now get moved out and put into a full-time facility that's doing what we do once a month and seeing it happen every single day instead. And I keep seeing, you know, this first facility having, you know, a little soccer field and our, our mainstream or our, sorry, our live stream studio and some pinball machines and a board game area. And most importantly, a sensory room, because if, if these families are coming in and, you know, one of the children are, are having, they're struggling with the environment, we need to have quiet rooms. And I would love to see these things built all over the world. And there's no reason why they can't be. If you, 
I'll I'll give you the situation here in Ontario. It's it's pretty ridiculous. Our our, our provincial government just announced last summer five hundred million dollars. Uh, they're going to infuse it into some sort of program that's going to further support families living with autism. I can tell you that my family hasn't seen a dime of it. In fact, our monthly universal child care check has decreased by $20 a month. So the only reason why Luke has been, he's at at his uh, therapy program right now. He goes every Saturday, but we pay for it. And somewhere there's this $500 million that families are supposed to use. And what it's starting to look like is a trickle-down system where they're not really speeding up the rate at which parents can access publicly funded therapy. They're just having that money in place so that uh, that expense doesn't all fall on them during the time that they're in power. And that really bothers me because, you know, one of the most important things I think Path of Play does, uh, as far as our family game day programs are concerned, is that between the day of diagnosis and the first possible day of therapy, there's like this huge gap of almost nothing for the child. Parents are just sitting around trying to cope, trying to talk to people, trying to find any little free program that they can. But there's really very little that's consistently offered to a family once that diagnosis happens. And when families come over to Path of Play Day, I hear some of the same things all the time, like it might take a little time for my child to get used to the environment. When can, when can we come again? That kind of stuff. Always, we, we get that at the end of the day. But it doesn't take them long to adapt because we have therapists on site and there are other kids here. And it's this environment is completely free of judgment. It's completely free of any rigid itinerary. People just come and do their thing. We see parents talking to each other, eating vegetables off the tray upstairs. We have a board game table set up. If some parents, we taught a family how to play Can't Stop and King of Tokyo the last time. And while we were doing that, there were other kids downstairs just ripping on the pinball machines. It's it's really amazing to watch. And every time we have one of these things, my wife and I are always talking about the kids that we met that day that we know would benefit from having proper early intervention. And that's the sad part is that you're watching these four, five, six, seven-year-olds having been diagnosed at three years old, still not having access to, to any therapies, and it's impacting them. It's, it's having a tremendous negative impact on their ability to put their best foot forward. And I, I always, lately, I've been thinking about that $500 million and thinking, Jesus, you know, if I had $20 million of that, I could build 40 facilities today. And we could operate it in a way that could be sustainable. And we could be helping probably, I don't know, two, 3,000 kids. I mean, it, it's sitting right there. And, and here's what's even worse. Our country, the, the, the federal government now, has just recently announced a $20 million subsidy to develop a national strategy. So they're going to spend $20 million to figure out what they should do. That, it just seems like, it's almost like we've treated this the same way we look at road construction. We just let, we keep letting the cars pile up until it gets so bad that it falls on a government and they try to deal with it in a way that's not really effective. I mean, if you're going to put $500 million into something, shouldn't the families be getting the phone call within a month or something? You know what I mean? Like, 
they just built a $30 million facility five minutes from my house, walked in it for the first time, and the place is empty. Like, it looks like this big college where maybe some students applied, but they all got rejected. Like, you could play floor hockey in the hallways with 10 people and not get in anybody's way. So I don't know what's happening. And when I see what we've been doing with Path of Play and where we want to go, it really kind of, I almost feel like, I don't know if anybody's seen the movie Patch Adams, but I feel like maybe this is how he felt when he knew there were people that needed help, that he knew he could help them, and he had to go around the whole system just to try and get something done. That's that's kind of what I feel like right now. It's sad how how it's thought of like that. You know, it's it it seems like it's more of the hey, look at we're going to do something where where you know it's it's a band aid on the situation. Totally, it's not it's it's not a um it's not a well thought out thing. But at least you guys are at least your path of play day and what you're doing for the community is headed in the right direction. So that's what we like to see. I'm hopeful. You know, and if people are just hearing about this for the first time, they can go to pathofplay.com and they can get more information. And you have a team set up. So uh, they're trying, you know, your your podcast is trying to raise a few more dollars for, you know, what we're trying to do for Path of Play Day. And if people want to support Kurt and the gang, um, I've learned very quickly that you got a great team over there. So it's been nice to be able to work with you guys. Yeah, and we appreciate that. So before we let you go, I want I want to talk about some some things that I before we talked. I there are some brain burning things I have to ask you. <laughs> okay. So so let's do this thing. It's probably things that you, we would ask regularly, but you know I felt like this other stuff was more important. That's but all let, right. Now that we're at the end, and let me thank uh, everybody so, for listening to my long winded answers. It's only <laughs> it's only because there's so many layers to this journey now. It's mm-hmm. it's once you pull on one thread, but if people are still you know tuning in, I just want them to know I appreciate their patience and listening to the story that that we have mm-hmm. here. Yeah, exactly. And it's an even bigger story than what we've been talking yeah, about. So yeah. Thank you. So thank let's you have some fun now. Yeah, All that's right. right. Well, we've been having fun the whole time. So <laughs> okay. let's continue that, good, shall good. we? Very good. Uh, so well, for my first question, I will go into smaller detail because I think that it's harder to come up with these than it would become for my next question. Okay. So what's what's your... I saw you have a ton of board games. So what's your top three board games right now? Oh, man. Well, I know that's a terrible question. I hate getting that question yeah. myself. No, so. I, I actually love that question. I, I don't <laughs> mind that question at all because I think it changes over time. Mm-hmm, sure does. But, you know, the sad part for me is that I have done very little board gaming in the last year and a half. But I'm looking at my shelf right now and I think, okay. These are going to be really weird. Cho- I don't know if people are going to be surprised by, I think, by my picks. But <laughs> I'm looking on my shelf, and I'm pretty certain one of the games I, I would say is Shogun. Okay. I really love Shogun. I love that it's, um, you know, it's a risk-like game, but good. <laughs> oh, shots fired. <laughs> yeah, shots fired. Why? Except, well, now, I'm not including Risk Legacy. Yeah. All right. I'm yeah. not including Everybody Risk Legacy. Uh, I would. I've always had a soft spot for King of Tokyo. 
I just, I, I still love the fact that I can take that game and show this to anybody and start to open their eyes about what the world of board games can become for, for them as, as, an, as an experience. And if I were to pick one of my deeper games, I would say something that has been a, I've held near and dear to my heart. I'm picking older titles here, but I've always loved Le Havre. Nice. That and or or toi, mm-hmm. I, I I think that there are complex games that they do things and you can understand them. But I've I've always uh, and I think why I've liked them for this kind of a strange reason, not because of the gameplay experience I have with my friends at the table, but when I, when I wasn't so busy with this, I I was spending a great deal of time when I learn games. I play these four player dummy games. And I always loved pulling those two games out particularly and just cracking open a beer and sitting back and and trying to play the role of each of these players and watching the game unfold because I was always marveled at how someone could design something like that. And I, I always found those to be the most enjoyable experiences when I did that. So that may be a little nostalgic in terms of my choices, but... If you trapped me on an island and said I could only take three games with me, those would probably be the ones on the list. Mm-hmm. And not bad ones at that. I don't think so. So now, no, not at all. <laughs> exactly. Well, now we're going to get into something where it may be harder, it may be easier for you to just to just random them off. But your top five pinball games. Wow. All right. The top because <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, you know, there are a lot, but not as many as there are board games. So. This could True. be a little bit easier. I think I have to span the the time era. And that's where pinball and board games are very different because a lot of games... Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I have to add one more to my board game list, which is Cosmic okay. Encounter. Oh, nice. Because it's Cosmic Encounter. And uh, <laughs> if you gave me a fifth, it would be something from Stefan Felt because I actually think he's my favorite designer. So, nice. okay, nice. back to the pinball. See, we got to go five and five. We got to balance this out anyway. Yeah, sounds good Okay. To me. So five pinball machines. I would take Creature from the Black Lagoon. It's a great theme, really, really cool music. And one of my favorite things about pinball, uh, and and you know what? There's probably going to be some people listening out there that think pinball is still like flipping a ball and keeping it alive and just hitting things randomly. That is not what pinball is. I would encourage everybody to download a, a free game called Pinball Arcade. You can get it on your your tablet or if you have steam you can get it they have a free pinball machine the uh, tales of the arabian nights and why this game is so amazing is because it it explains the rules of every pinball machine and nice when you have even an understanding of a few of the rules the level of engagement goes through the roof i was visiting uh mandy uh pinup girl there mandy on a dice tower she lives in Ottawa, mm-hmm. and I was up there uh, doing a documentary for CBC, and we went and played some pinball one night. And I loved watching her level of engagement go up as I was. we played Metallica and Ghostbusters a lot. And I just told her like two or three of the rules, and that was enough for her to just get going and, and reach another level of engagement. She was pleasantly surprised at what a pinball machine can offer when... Uh, when you do understand rules, even even some of them. So mm-hmm. now, what I love about a pinball machine the most, I always engage best with a machine when there's that risk-reward 
element. In other words, you you make certain shots and build up certain things. And the more you build it up, the, the more bonus scores you can cash in. And that's why I love Creature from the Black Lagoon so much, because when you're playing multi-ball, you can hit this target to keep, I want to say, I haven't played in a while, but I think it's, you can keep spelling the word creature, I think is how it works. And if you do it three or four times, your jackpot multiplies when you make the jackpot shot. So it's a great risk-reward element because when you're in multi-ball, you could be just trying to shoot jackpots or you could be building it up by shooting this other target and then going to the jackpot shot. And I, I so I love that. And the theme is just, the way they executed the theme was great. Machine number two would be Attack from Mars. It is a 90s machine. It is actually one of the Path of Play pins. It is just a fun shooting game. Uh, again, another great theme. They they have like that B movie, um, old radio kind of style uh, audio to it, and uh, yep. some great comedy in there. Yeah, it's by far, by far my favorite pinball game. Okay. I love the bad accents, like Sacre Bleu. The, yep. The uh, the aliens are uh, attacking the Alpha Tower. There's, I love there's that. the cow thing. If you hit that, you hear the mooing. It's just it's great. <laughs> it's great. It's close cousin too. Medieval Madness is uh, is another mm-hmm. one that people oh, really love. Another and great game. People may not know mm-hmm. this, but Tina Fey was a voice in that game. No, she way. is the she is the damsel princess. Okay, that might that might just pop mine to the top. Then there you, there you go. Awesome. Tina, there's your tidbit. Uh, let's see. I I think. This may be where it gets a little bit trickier. I think Iron Man is something I would put by Stern Pinball. It's uh, it's a fast game. It's a short game. It's uh, extremely challenging, and it's just it's it's just a really it's a game that offers a lot of flow, similar to Attack from Mars, but it's 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 definitely a shorter game, and you're you have one objective. I think it's called is it called Do or Die? I can't remember now, but. You, you basically have to fight all the enemies and you have the option of fighting them individually or you can stack them and, mm. and you know, level up the, 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 the uh, difficulty in the game. So that's, that's a good challenging game. I would have to say The Wizard of Oz by Jersey Jack Pinball came out in 2013. You would think that The Wizard of Oz would be like this family-friendly game and it is because of the color and all of the decorations on the... On the pinball machine, like when people come over here to play it, they play it all the time. They just they just love the way the table looks, and you can hear all the sounds from the from the movie, and you can your ball captures. You know, Dorothy gets caught, and and the bats carry her away, or the monkeys, or whatever they are. <laughs> um, but it is one of the deepest rule sets in all of pinball, comparable to Twilight Zone. If you're familiar with Twilight Zone at all, yep, Twilight Zone, another great one. Right. So, but the thing with The Wizard of Oz is that it's almost like you're playing the movie and there's so much in the game that you're almost not even watching your score. You have to acquire eight, I think it's emeralds or diamonds, and even just getting one of those takes 15 minutes to get. Like a a game, if you complete it, is well over an hour to finish. And you got to defeat the witch and you've got to melt her and you've got to go through the haunted forest and you can save Toto if you if you if your ball goes down the out lane and you hit all the Togo targets you get one shot to save Toto. It's just so thematically in tune with the movie itself and it is a it's it's a journey based experience in pinball and and there's really nothing out there like 
that. So where where am I at? Is that three or four? That might that's four, right? So I get one more. Oh geez, I've, <laughs> to tell you the truth, I have lost track. Yeah, we're at four now. So so now I got to pick an an older one, and this is where it gets a little tough for me because it, it it tends to change once in a while. But one that I think I would consider would be Fathom. Uh, it's an it's not like the from the Gottlieb days in the seventies, but Fathom is like one of those Bally games that um, they came out with a series of them. Like uh, uh, the they came out with Eight Ball and Harlem Globetrotters, and they had mm. like these. The, the, the Bally pins are are still sought after to this day. But Fathom is just a again, it's building up your multipliers and cashing in and trying to make this loop shot off of a side flipper. It's it's just a really really great game and. And it's uh, one of the ones that have stood the test of time. So I, I think I would, I would take those five. If I was allowed a sixth, I would probably pick something from the Gottlieb days. Um, trying to think, uh, what would be a good Gottlieb pin to take? I had a hot shot. That was like a billiard game where you had to hit like two banks of targets. They were at a 45-degree angle, and then you had to cash in a saucer to uh to get your points so i mean and and what's great about those games is that in many ways they're still oh i know what i would take is, is a meteor meteor is a oh, really yeah. good game you gotta because you gotta get all Meteor's the targets but one of them and then you gotta rip that spinner to and again there you go again it's risk reward cashing in <laughs> uh building up your bonus like i love i've always loved those games so there there's my five and a half now what nice. about you what would nice. what, what you love do it. you have a list of five well, you already you already picked half of them, I think. So, Attack from Mars, Medi- Medieval Madness, Twilight Zone, um, Adam's Family is another one that I really enjoy. Oh, okay. Um, and then because I don't, there've been like so many iterations from the Star Wars franchise. I think it was made in the '80s or '90s. It's uh, uh the original trilogy. Uh, Star Wars game, and oh, it's okay. got it's got some video on it, and I yep. can't. I, I'm I'm not I'm not aware of like who makes these games and stuff like that, but it's one of those that was at our local. That was episode one, um, I think. Was it? Ju- I think it was just for episode one. Yep, yep, it was. You're right because then at the end, then you would shoot the. But I can tell you, I can't stand Adam's family. Oh I no! I can't stand it. I still like you. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's all right. You're a great guy. Whew, but I can goodness. I cannot wow. stand Adam's family. And strangely enough, why is that? You know that electric terror uh, target just drives me nuts. <laughs> it just drives me up a wall. I hate it, and uh, I can never make it. Probably, yeah. it's probably a great. I mean, look, it's the it, they sold over twenty thousand of those. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if they, then, you know, you got Chicago Gaming doing all these remakes, and uh, the Attack from Mars that we have here is a remake from Chicago Gaming. So they're, awesome. I think they're coming out with Monster Bash next. There's been Cactus Canyon oh. being talked about. I would not be surprised if you saw Adam's yep. family come out at some point in time again. I like that. And then uh, and then like a five and a half for me is something I actually just recently played at our local game store, and that's the Batman 66. Oh, it is. That one. Well, here's a story for you. Yeah. I'm glad that Stern is changing the way they release their machines. They just announced Iron Maiden. But nice. what's got people so excited is that they... <laughs> When Batman 66 came out, their code was they they referred to it as 0.88 I think. So it wasn't even a 1.0 code and what you ended up seeing was like okay, there's this great Batman 66 game, it looks great, 
love the theme, but it doesn't really do anything. And yeah. um, I was the person who's been working on this for the last, gosh, it's been a few months now. His name's Lyman Sheets. I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but he's he is a very well-respected uh, code programmer in the pinball world. And I was just recently in Chicago with Professional Amateur Pinball Association, and they, they're they a partner of ours with Path of Play. And it turned out that Lyman Sheets was having his 52nd birthday, and I ended up at the party. And it was really cool being in that man's basement because he had, like, his coding computer was hooked up to a Batman, and I was literally standing five feet in front of the machine that he's been using to update this game and just to to be able to appreciate the work that he's done as a pinball fan it would be you know it would be like being in Eric Lang's house and seeing his prototypes or getting to hold his Diana award that he got a couple of years ago i mean it's you know you, you as a hobbyist appreciate those experiences and it was really <laughs> nice to meet him for the first time that way but uh batman Batman is a great game now, and it's, um, yeah, that's a good pick. I like that pick. I, I just have a soft spot in my heart for the Batman series anyway, so anything that comes with it, <laughs> done well at least, is always, yep. always. And that would be uh, a good a pin for Path of Play, too. I would, uh, they got a couple. I would, I would love to uh, get a, a, you know, as we grow, like if we get, do, if we do get that first facility built, we'll want to, uh, you know, have more machines. I think like a Spider-Man home version would be good for kids. Mm -hmm. Like there's certain machines that I can't bring in here. Like I love Bram Stoker's Dracula, but it doesn't, oh, yeah. it, it will never suit the path of play mantra, right? It's just too yeah, dark exactly. of a game. So yep. even Creature from the Black Lagoon, probably not a good choice. In fact, even Attack mm -hmm. from Mars was a bit of a push, but. I knew that there were ways to stop the Martians from dancing and I could mm -hmm. keep the volume really low. And it's actually Luke's favorite game. He um, he loves it. He hasn't beat his first ship yet, but he's come close. So <laughs> nice. it's not bad for a four-year-old, though. You don't. He did start a couple multi-balls on Dialed In, though. And nice. uh, if you look at the Path of Play promo, if you're listening carefully, he actually calls a shot and makes it, which was kind of funny. So <laughs> He's like, That's I'm going to awesome. hit it in the movie theater now. And I was I just sort of like indulged him right i just said oh okay great and then he makes it like two seconds later he's like oh look look i did make it into the movie theater <laughs> loved it just loved it uh, that's awesome yeah. well this was a blast mike i really appreciate you coming on and talking to us and uh bringing some more awareness to the podcast i really appreciate that it was a pleasure to be on the show and thank you so much for asking me no problem so if you're if you're curious again go to pathofplayday.com they also have a facebook group join our group help us raise some money or you know make a group of your own you know go out there and make make some good of the world that's what we're here to do so until next time i'm kurt and this was the mfg cast bye everybody legends of tabletop podcast creating legends one die at a time